0: Based on what you've seen, I'm I'm taking ivermectin. Should I keep taking ivermectin? Is is there any reason not to?
1: Not that I Church, can see. Really,
0: I mean, we have I mean, critics that are saying, "Oh, oh no, no, no! You have to have a much bigger study. You have to have a great big study coming out of Oxford in order to prove anything." Do we really at this point?
1: Well, I mean, the whole point of a, a meta-analysis is to replicate a big study. So I think you know that's essentially been done.
0: Good evening. I'm Betsy Ashton. I am the creative director of the FLCCC Alliance. But years ago, I was uh, a consumer reporter for CBS News. So I know a fair amount about good sources and good stories and good facts and what is the truth. And I have to tell you that the story you're going to be hearing tonight from us should have been the lead story in newspapers and on media all over the world this week because of the study that you're going to hear about right here. It is a peer reviewed study. It was published in the American Journal of uh, Therapeutics by a group of distinguished British scientists and Some of them are here with us tonight to tell you about that study. Wonderful accents. You're going to love them. And God bless them. They are staying up late for you because it's five hours ahead over there on British summertime, which means it's midnight. But they stayed up because they want to tell you their story. They're talking about something that is the gold standard of reviews of the safety and efficacy of ivermectin. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing drug. You've heard about it here before it. We have had success with it in treating patients. You've heard that from Dr. Corey. Um, The only thing wrong with it is it's expensive. Nobody's going to make a profit off of it. And there are manufacturers that can make billions off of new products, uh, new medicines, as long as there isn't an existing drug out there that would uh, negate the need for emergency use authorizations. Well, but there are doctors around who care more about patients than pocketing profits. And there are scientists who care more about data, and humanity, and we have them here. We have them here tonight, some of them, which is a, which is our joy. Uh, as I said, the Brits are with us and you're gonna meet them in just a second. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. We are here once a week, 45 minutes to an hour. It's gonna probably run to an hour. You know that. When we have a lot of guests, that happens uh, because we're gonna tell you about the prevention and treatment, things that work in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 and we uh, are also going to be taking your questions. We promise we'll get your questions in tonight. We know sometimes we run out of time, but no, 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 we promise we're gonna get some in tonight. So in just a few minutes, I'm gonna introduce you to our British FLCCC Alliance colleague, Dr. Uh, Scott Mitchell. He's gonna go on first with me and then we will get to the others, Um, but, let me give you the the business that I have to tell you, you know, the disclaimer, I have to tell you that what you're going to hear tonight is for information and education. It is not personal medical advice. Whatever you hear from us, no matter how good it sounds, you have to take it to your own doctor because your own doctor is the only person who knows what's going on inside your body, what other medicines you're taking. We don't. So to decide what to, what you need, what treatments you need, you have to talk to your own doctor. You got that? That's important. Now, the other thing I have to tell you is who we are. The FLCCC Alliance is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We are offering education and information. Uh, We are not selling, we are not manufacturing any drugs or anything else. Um, We have no financial interest whatsoever in ivermectin or in any of the drugs that are part of the protocols that our doctors are using. We came together. At the beginning of the pandemic, simply to try to save lives. End of story, that's it. That's all you really need to know about us, except we do live on your donations and some of you have been, God bless you, you've been sending them in. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've been doing for us. You're helping us save lives in a pandemic. And the first thing I want to do now is have you meet our British member. Of the FLCCC, Doctor Scott Mitchell, come on and meet the audience. And will you please uh, tell them this wonderful place that you live in, where it is, and what you do, and how you got involved in all of this? Go ahead, well, Scott.
2: Well, good morning to you uh, uh, from here, Betsy. It's just past good morning, midnight. right? Or, it's
0: after midnight.
2: <laughs> I, <I've, laughs> I've been working all day, but um I'm dedicated to this, so I've stayed up late to participate because I, I feel this is very important. So it's 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 only 7 p.m. there over in Eastern time, but I say it's just past midnight here. So I'm I'm hitting the coffee hard to keep going. So <laughs> there we go.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Tell us, you know, um, where show folks. I know you have a picture there of you're in Guernsey. Show them what it looks like, and uh, you've got some lovely slides, and uh, and how you got involved in this study, and what you what it's all about because it's pretty big.
2: Yeah, I'll just uh, try and share my slides now. Uh, so I've i finally managed to get on the FLCCC update. Uh, they've obviously had the the best looking doctors on uh, before me, but um, I've done my hair, and you know. Trying to look my best. So uh, my name's uh, Scott Mitchell. I'm a doctor who uh, works in emergency medicine in Guernsey and the Channel Islands. I don't know if you can quite see there because it's quite small, but uh, we are situated between the south coast of England and the north coast of uh, France, Normandy. So there's two main islands that sit in the English Channel. Guernsey's a little bit more north and slightly more. Uh, slightly smaller than jersey we have a population i think around 65 66 000 people now so we're relatively small and we, we've had a relatively um a good outcome in the pandemic perhaps from good public health measures and also the fact we are an island and being able to um close our borders and actually we have a relatively normal life on the island itself now so um in addition to my job there i'm also been involved with the FLCCC not as one of the perhaps big five as such as Pierre might say uh, but as a I think I'm designated as a clinical advisor I perhaps uh, prefer the uh, term conciliary or something but um um so I kind of got involved uh, shortly after every uh, the main people got together um kind of because I was quite worried about the scenes coming out of uh well, uh, North Italy, and, you know, uh, hospitals being overwhelmed. And we were, we were kind of seeing that, you know, uh, most uh, physicians and hospitals were adopting this uh, supportive care approach, uh, sticking people's, people on ventilators. Um, and especially later coming out of New York, um, uh, eight or more out of ten people that went on ventilators died. So I kind of thought to myself, there must be more to this. I noticed the Chinese and whoever were using certain things, trying certain things. One of them was vitamin C. And I knew, I know Pierre is kind of our president, but our, our godfather is really um, Paul Maric. And, and he's been, you know, really doing a lot of work in vitamin C previously in sepsis. So I thought I'd get in touch with him. Uh, I didn't really expect much of a response, but got back to me with this whole treatment plan for COVID and I thought, Brilliant. You know, someone's actually thinking about how how, how to treat this disease rather than not doing very much and trying to keep people off ventilators. And subsequently, we've realised that, you know, putting people on ventilators, you know, is is actually harmful. And we actually should try and do our best to keep people off ventilators and offer treatments both in the hospital, which kind of our group started with um, our angle towards treating people in hospital with the, the Math Plus protocol, Uh, methylprednisolone, uh, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, thiamine, um, heparin, and a few other drugs. And actually, we've been quite vindicated about uh, recommending these, um, especially steroids, which were very debated early on and actually recommended against by the WHO. Uh, But after the recovery trial on dexamethasone was published, uh, um, well, everyone's using steroids now to treat COVID in hospital. Unfortunately, as a, as our group thinks, uh, well, perhaps the dose is a little bit small for particularly severe COVID. So that's 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 my background in it. I'm also um, been involved. Uh, unfortunately, hasn't, she hasn't been able to be with us tonight, Dr. Tess Laurie. Um, she's uh, a, a a qualified doctor who has more latterly been running a. Uh, uh, a company that um, uh, looks at um, medical evidence and provides guidelines for the, the likes of the NHS and National Health Service in the UK, and even for she's the, been with us many okay. times.
0: So our our folks have met her. So that's we yeah. they, we know Tess she, and we love okay. her. Okay, so um, she um saw Pierre
2: um, went before the Senate committee in early um, December, looking at early treatments treatments. Uh, Tess saw this. I think between Christmas and New Year, uh, just in December, and uh, thought, oh, what's he saying? And decided to look at the data herself, analyze it and thought, well, on metin, I thought, well, there's something here. So um, myself being the British member of the FLCCC, we kind of got collaborating with Tess and then we decided to, well, I'll probably go on to the next slide and talk about stuff. Uh, if I can get the next slide up. Um, and decided we need to do a proper review of this. So th- this this is what this uh, meeting is about this week. Yeah, uh, it is, beautiful. Our, yeah, our paper that's just been published and I think we're all quite proud of it. Um, uh, there's uh, I think three of us on tonight that have contributed towards this paper, uh, Andrew, Edmunds uh, and myself. So it's called Ivermexin for Prevention and Treatment of COVID-19 Infection a systematic review, meta-analysis, and trial sequential analysis to inform clinical guidelines. That's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, (laughs) um, anyway. So that has um, been several months in the making, not fraught with difficulties in getting published, uh, but uh, I think we all kind of celebrated, uh, I think it went up live on, uh, it's published in the American Journal of Therapeutics, which went up live on Thursday. So I just want to talk a little bit more. There's some people that uh, may not have uh, been on the webinar before and uh, perhaps new to this. So I just want to go a very quick run through of ivermectin and what it is. So that, that ivermectin was discovered in the soils in Japan um, from a bacteria called streptomyces. I don't know why they're digging around in the soils but hopefully trying to find things because a lot of products and medicine are found in nature. You might remember penicillin and Fleming was a fortuitous discovery. Um, I I gather they must have tested it on uh, various uh, diseases. I think they found in mice that it was active against parasitic diseases, worms. It's been in use for nearly 40 years with close to 4 billion doses administered. Looking at the safety data from the WHO's um, uh, drug adverse reaction, reporting. It's got an impeccable safety profile. It's extremely low cost costs in most countries, often costing a few cents or pennies, uh, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on or whatever. And I think the most interesting thing, it was never designed for one purpose. It is a natural molecule. So there have been, uh, it's been looked at um, even for viruses previously, but uh, how um, ivermectin for COVID came about was there was an Australian study uh, out of the lab, around it was April last year um, that demonstrated that um, ivermectin had efficacy. It worked against uh, COVID in the test tube. Now, that doesn't always translate to working in the human body for a lot of factors. But later on, the, the latter half to uh, latter quarter of the year, there were several more studies coming out um, from around the world giving a signal that ivermectin worked uh, in COVID in the body. Possibly in all stages of this disease, so I'll just move on. So, um, so I, I mentioned before, um, what kind of Tess was the lead on this, and she grew, uh, brought a group of us together. Um,
0: I'm I think we should say one thing: we we should say that she was going to be on tonight, but she had two more talks she had to give tomorrow on this early. And so it was a little tough. And I think we ought to say it was her birthday tonight too. And she deserved to at least have a nice dinner and a celebration on on that. So happy birthday Tess. But she also wanted to give the rest of you guys a chance to meet the public and for people to see you too, because she has been here. She has run the bird conferences and is well known to all of our audience. So we're really we we um, we miss her, but we're happy to have you, Scott, and we're happy to have Edmund, and we're happy to have Andy, who are coming up.
2: Yeah. So, absolutely, and yes, happy birthday, Tess. <laughs> so, um, as I said, tested this preliminary um, analysis of the data, but um, to maybe get more uh, respect, um, Cochrane is as uh, a, uh, um, a lot of people maybe. A, May or may not be aware, um, an, organi- an organization of scientists, etc., who um, look at um, collating data and studies uh, on uh, you know uh, you know questions and particularly often healthcare. Um, th- there's a question: Does this treatment work? Um, how do you go about it, and how do you find the answers? Um, so um, th- this works by, um, as I say, setting a question and then. Um, then getting the results from um, what, where do you look? You look for the data, and in, in medicine, you look in there for for the literature on studies and uh, medical articles. So, um, we decided to set up a um, review of this and uh, search all the medical databases. There's a few of them which I won't go into at the moment on Ivermex and we covered everything up to April the twenty fifth. So
0: it's considered the gold standard is it not the Cochrane methodology if you yes, do uh-huh. that you're going to get with all the studies that you put together you're getting really the best that you can get
2: yes i, I think so um i'm far from an expert in this um I, you can probably speak to uh andy the statistician after uh-huh. but yeah i think Cochrane has um, probably got the highest uh, reputation in terms of you know um, the, the, the um, way that um, uh, evidence is analyzed from, from their protocols. So we um, set some questions as to looking at ivermectin, um, probably the most important thing in terms of primary outcomes is, you know does ivermectin stop people dying? Um, and then uh, there was also some uh, uh, looking at the data and whether um, ivermectin stopped or reduced uh, COVID-19 infection. And some secondary outcomes, including uh, I haven't listed them all here. Time to PCR negativity, clinical recovery, um, symptom improvement, etc. So, uh, as you, uh, as has probably been discussed multiple amounts of times on on uh, the FLCC webinars, uh, most doctors and scientists will not look beyond randomized controlled trials. These are trials that um, uh, pits a treatment against either against another treatment or a placebo, which is a, a dummy pill. Uh, the the best sort of these trials are what we call double blind, I, both the person getting the treatment and the person running the study doesn't know which group. So they're divided into two groups usually, which group gets which treatment. Uh, so we identified uh, twenty two treatment. Uh, randomized controlled trials and treatment and three in prophylaxis. I just want to add at this moment, there are also multiple other, what we call observational trials. So these are trials that haven't been randomized, but people may have looked at uh, perhaps retrospectively um, cohorts or groups that have been given one treatment against the other and see if there's a pattern. And often good observational trials will, you know, suggest the same uh, outcome as randomised trials. But as I said, unfortunately, the um, medical and scientific scientific community uh, only want to see the results of randomised controlled trials. So to um, pick the highest quality of evidence, um, that's what we looked at in this study. And these trials were looked at in for, for, for risk of biases and um, whether such as things as were both groups blinding, whatever, and the quality of evidence. Um, so, um, evidence can be graded from, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the pinnacle of evidence is what we call a meta analysis. I look at a large group of uh, randomized controlled trials, and probably the lowest quality of evidence is, um, you know, expert opinion. So, let's move on to the next slide. Uh, so, bringing up the primary outcome results, um, which um, the as I said, the most important one is probably death, um, and we found that ivermectin and COVID nineteen provides a significant survival benefit, and we put that at moderate certainty. Um, people might that's want big, to hear high. Certainty. Yeah. yeah, that's well, big to might, have
0: moderate.
2: Yeah, yeah, people might want to hear high certainty. But you, you, you need um, massive groups of uh, uh, randomized controlled trials with loads of patients in them. I believe, if you correct me if I’m wrong, that um, you know the Oxford Recovery trial on dexamethasone would probably just come under moderate certainty because it’s one single trial, although it’s got a lot of patients in it. To get a high certainty of evidence, you’ve got to get multiple trials of that, um, you know equivalence to, to say that. So, meta analysis of uh, uh, 15 trials on all cause mortality. So, we found um, that ivermectin reduced death by an average of 62%. So, I think that's quite significant. And the risk of death uh, in hospitalized patients, uh, those treated with ivermectin, 2.3% versus 7.8%. a lot of these trials were run in other in other countries, so um, that might strike people as being a bit lower than you might expect from uh, maybe in the US or the UK. But I know certainly in countries such as India, that people were put in hospital with milder symptoms than uh, you would have had in in uh, in other countries. So perhaps that's why the um, figures are lower there. Okay. Uh, next slide. So. I was like the secondary outcomes um this was this was a bit more difficult to judge because uh, it was a bit more difficult to gain the data from the studies and I've and we've put low certainty evidence here that this this again doesn't mean that um the evidence is very poor it's just there were a few data and few studies to say whether this um, um was a pattern so It doesn't mean it's uh, not effective. It's just, I think, on these outcomes, we need more data. Uh, Edmund's gonna speak a bit more about prophylaxis. Now, I just wanna clarify, prophylaxis means prevention. Uh, So, there are a relatively small number of studies in in the uh, analysis, uh, three studies, although they had quite a fair number of participants um, Some healthcare workers and also amongst contacts of people positive with COVID. Um, So the the data from our paper and statistical analysis suggests that um, uh, giving ivermectin to prevent infection reduces the chances of your infection by 86% and if you compare that to the vaccines that's very good Um, and then these studies uh, are yeah, comparing the groups uh, between no ivermectin and ivermectin, um, in the group that got I- ivermectin, only 5% got uh, infected with COVID-19. Whereas almost 30% in those who, who didn't get it. Uh, again, we have to rate this evidence low certainty due to the low number of trials and study design limitations. But uh, again, I must just uh, reiterate that um, that's um, because of uh, the the low number of trials and low number of data. Uh, And I I think we have to give an honest uh, rating of the um, certainty of the data uh,
0: for that. Uh, Quick drink. Well, I think we need to bring in the statistician here uh, because it's uh, we're running a little long and we need to get uh, some of these other folks in here who have worked on this. Uh, yeah. Do you have any, I, uh, much more? I, One more here? I, I think this is the, the penultimate slide, so I'll okay. be done in a minute. So, sorry to bore you, <laughs>
2: Betsy. <laughs> um, oh. So I just want to quickly mention, because uh, as well as uh, being uh, effective efficacious in the treatment of a condition, it, it's also, Perhaps at least more important that what you're using, uh, looking at in the trials, is safe. So there are very few events, um, adverse events, in the trials to reach statistical significance. So um, we've also got looked at safety studies, um, and they suggest that giving doses even ten times what you would use for parasitic infections is safe. So I'll quickly conclude. So my closing statement is. Why don't we adopt Ivermectin now? Um, this is an article um, on BBC News uh, published yesterday uh, saying that uh, Oxford are going to now be start st- studying Ivermectin for COVID-19. Now, I think this is just criminal, especially if they're going to be, with the data we have now uh, published in our paper and the FLCCC paper that, um, ivermectin is effective. The only uh, ethical trial we could use or do is a dose response study trial. So comparing lower doses of ivermectin to higher doses and seeing if the higher doses are more effective. Um, I I just think there's enough evidence uh, uh, and that um, ivermectin is a very safe medicine and there's enough evidence now to uh, show it's uh, efficacious. And yes, the vaccines are coming in, which hopefully prevent severe illness and death. But I really just think um, vaccines should be seen as a bridge and a complement to vaccines. And it's especially an option in low and middle income countries who may not be able to access the vaccines for some time. So I'll stop there and uh, let you Thank carry you. on.
0: Well, thank you. Let's bring Andy in here, Andrew Bryant, who is the lead author of the study. Uh, and Andrew, uh, there he is. Uh, you tell the audience, please. Now you're a statistician. You're a real numbers guy, a data guy. Tell the audience uh, about your background, who you are, and how you got involved in this. And uh, what tell us why this is so critically important? What the numbers that we're seeing here?
1: I think for Tess's benefit, I better say joint author.
0: Okay, um, <laughs> just
1: clear that one up. Um, so basically, I'm affiliated. So my connection with Tess is I know her through the um, the gynecological, um, the Cochrane Gynecological Cancer Review Group, based in Bath, and they that's a, um, they specialize in sort of. Um, systematic reviews for uh, gynecological cancers, you know, your cervical cancers, um, ovarian, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm based at Newcastle University in the UK. Um, and as you can tell by the accent, it's very different to Scots. It's a bit more difficult to understand, yeah. probably. Um, I'm got, unfortunately Newcastle is a beautiful city. I've got no presentation, so I was called up in in the last minute. But I'm sure if you Google the city, it's very nice. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But I, so I'm basically like a, a trial statistician. I'm a, on a portfolio of different studies and uh, you know, mainly sort of primary or randomized controlled trials. Um, but I, I could do sort of non-randomized studies as well. You know, what a, there's usually sort of um, research design requests come in every Thursday and um, we have a stats meeting. So I'm based within Newcastle University. There's a population um, health sciences institute um, and the stats, the biostatistics um, team, um, you know, mull over the, the requests, and we sort of allocate different projects. Um, and I think my equipoise in most object in most um, projects is that I'm totally oblivious to what these drug I can't pronounce most of the drugs uh, that come in, um, and I'd have a very lack of understanding clinically. So I think that that's helpful in a lot of ways as it for a statistician because. It does create that equipoise. You've got no preconceptions of what might work and what will happen. You're just basically driven by the data. You're often the blinded statistician. So when you have, if you're involved in a primary trial, you might have, um, you have your data management committees, um, especially if it's a drug trial. You've got MHRA, um, are very strict on the safety of um of drugs within the, those trials. So you've got strict procedures to meet. You might get audited on your work. You know. Your computer code, is it up to scratch? Is it reproducible? If I got hit by a bus, could someone step in and reproduce that analysis and take over? Um, so, I, you know, I think you have to have equipoise. And I think in terms of the ivermectin work, I had no idea what ivermectin was. Um, it's just through, um, I had, you know, I think Tess just approached me just to get someone to help leads in front of the review, just for the... You know, Who knew how to method. do it, right? You knew the method. You well, knew what to look well, at. I mean, Tess is very confident. She knows the method, but I think, you know, she's obviously... Yeah. For company is very busy on other projects as well. So I think it's just someone just to help help lead and and to have input, you know, and I think um, and obviously I, I drafted in um, a health economist uh, on the work as well. Um, so Sarah Hill, based in Newcastle. Um, and I've no, never met in the flesh any of the people, any of the co-authors other than tests in the past um, through the the cancer uh, work for Cochrane. Um, so I think in terms of, um, yeah, sorry, you have been asked.
0: I was just gonna say, so you're truly an independent scientist. You know how to do the data and you didn't know anything about ivermectin and you start to look at these trials and you start to put it all in and, and what, What's your impression as you start started the data started coming out what what was how did you how do you read this as its importance well, and what's it telling you
1: i mean I, my employer is newcastle uh, university um i do i am a, a freelance statistician doing a, an occasional bit of work but not much you know mainly just peer review work for the uh the guy cancer group a statistical editor and mm-hmm. um, there but um you know in terms of um Newcastle University's benefits um, it's you know it's a piece of the COVID pie you know I hadn't had any COVID research um, I, the only thing I've gotten uh, during the pandemic is a horrible isolation beard and um, I'd never had a beard before so um, <laughs> that's yeah. but I think in terms of the um, it was nice to get get involved in some COVID research because a lot of the colleagues or um, I've been doing work and um, some of them specialise in sort of adaptive designs and things like that. So the, you know, the different arms um, in the Oxford trials. So I was, I've often questioned them since, you know, why the ivermectin wasn't on one of the arms, you know? So an adaptive design would be, you could start with eight arms and then you'll drop based on stopping rules if one's not looking like it's um, being effective or it's not safe. And then you would sort of try and just, you know, try and ascertain um, which, which of the drugs would be best. 10 years treatment. Um, so yeah, I'm very absolutely new to ivermectin in terms of you know what it was, but that's absolutely irrelevant. I think it's, it's actually sometimes helpful and um, being an analyst or a statistician, not having any preconceptions, you're just, you're just driven by what the data comes in and you analyze accordingly.
0: And based on what you've seen and based on the results that you've seen, uh do you you feel that the world should be uh using this drug
1: yeah i mean it was it was my suggestion to do the trial sequential analysis as an add-on to the certainty of the evidence so i think the certainty of the evidence is you've got to outline that in a transparent way because i think the the readership of these reviews is for a lay audience so i think you know that you've got to drill down on the technical terms and the analyses and you know, just just basically say what it is on the tenure. What does it all mean? Um, and I think the certainty of the evidence is a it's a crucial component. I think it's it's been well developed in the Cochrane world for, for a long time now. Um, and it's basically just you know how trustworthy are these results? To um, you know, and I think the th- the, th- the main things to consider. We have got a, a strong result. You know, the, the point estimate and the the reduction in the risk of death for the primary outcome and various other outcomes. Um, is strong but you know there's various other caveats um, associated with that so you, you would look at the risk of bias within the individual studies um i think there's only three studies within the 15 included that uh, we deemed to be at high risk um and then we did a series of sensitivity analyses to so you, you've got your primary results and you've got to do a series of sensitivity analysis to test the robustness of that result so again it's testing you know how reliable you think it is is it is it, if it's sensitive then it's you know, the certainty is lower. Um, so I passed all those tests and the trial sequential analysis is basically just a, a fancy name for doing something quite simple, really. It's just looking at when you've got a small number of studies at the start, you might have monitoring boundaries, which basically just um, are more harsh on their results. So it's harder to get statistical significance early on because you've got little evidence and as the evidence accumulates, uh, the boundaries are a little bit more lenient because you've got more numbers and you've got greater number of events at the end. So the event being deaths, so which is an unfortunate outcome, but it does add extra additional power to the analysis. Um, and this basically suggested as a meta-analysis is essentially just a replicate of a, a big trial. So you could you could have one large trial, but the the, na- the point of a meta-analysis is to utilize all the available evidence. So if you have lots of smaller studies added on, then that's where you get your power from. And power is basically a statistical term for um, just having sufficient numbers, basically. You know, um, have we got sufficient numbers in the analysis to, to trust it and assess all the various other um, caveats out there. And the moderate certainty evidence, um, as Scott alluded to, um, high is very difficult to, to get, because you, you start off at high, but then you downgrade for various, and um, factors and not it? But I think it's, if you look at my list of um, publications, I mean, I, there's very few that I've got of, that have been high. And um, I think moderate to, if you look at the definition of um, moderate in the table, it's saying that, uh, you know, everything could change. I mean, you, don't, you can't say anything for definite, but I think if you look at the safety um, within just the review but if you look at the wider picture and um, and if you're looking at the doses given in the other purpose so f- for, for instance scabies and various other things then it has proved to be to have a very good safety record especially in the number of people dying from it it's been very few so I think if you you've just got away all the evidence it's sort of just a blanket of evidence and ver- you know a lot of factors and that's why in systematic reviews people, often come with different ways of thinking and i think you've you've just got to allow the reader to some extent without putting words in their mouth just read the evidence look at it themselves uh, weigh up all their caveats in the head all these other factors and then they make their mind up i think you don't the, the point about in a Cochrane review is not to make uh, recommendations but i think people can make them themselves you don't need to be told and i think the evidence suggests that people are well equipped to make their own mind up here. And it's, in my opinion, it, it seems like the same, a very, very good argument for rolling it out, especially in countries like India at the moment that are in the most need, just, be, just because if nothing else, it's, it's it's very pragmatic. I think even vaccines in India at a relatively low cost might be potentially too much. I think if this is almost a giveaway, then, with the safety in mind then you know i would i would endorse that but you know th- that would be up to the policymakers to implement uh, not for me to make these judgments
0: well, yes but you would you based on what you know and based on what you've seen i mean obviously not everybody that's on this podcast tonight is going to be able to read the entire thing uh some people don't have the time to do yeah. it uh, so, so if you're getting the executive summary, I mean, you would say, based on what you've seen, I'm I'm taking ivermectin. Should I keep taking ivermectin? Is, is there any reason not
1: to? Not that sure, I can see. Really,
0: I mean, we have I mean, critics that are saying, oh, oh, no, 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 you have to have a much bigger study. You have to have a great big study coming out of Oxford in order to prove anything. Do we really, at this point? Well,
1: I mean the whole point of a meta-analysis is to replicate a big study. So I think you know that's essentially been done. And I think the trial sequential analysis is just a it's a way of testing, you know, um under adjusted conditions because there's a lot of uh, living reviews out at the moment which basically continuously update an analysis without any adjustment. Um and you know that could almost lead to a sort of false conclusion in that. Could, at a different a particular point in time when a study is added, you could make a wrong decision. It's a sort of further safeguard against that in terms of it's adjusting using these sort of monitoring boundaries. But um, in my opinion, I mean, it, it seems very strong evidence and a very strong case to promote ivermectin. So I can't see why not, definitely not. <laughs>
0: okay, that's, that's <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, Well, it's time that we better get uh, Edmund in here and see uh, his role in this. Uh, Edmund, can you tell us? I know that you looked very closely at the studies involving prevention, prophylaxis. So perhaps you can tell us uh, especially what you found out there and what you you saw in those. And then we'll bring the other docs back in for all the questions right and first you better tell us a little bit more about who you are and how how you came into this because our audience doesn't know
3: you so okay well thank thank you very much betsy um can you you hear me then first of all oh yeah yes that's good that's good okay so uh, a little bit about myself um first thing to say is that i am not a medical doctor i am a physics phd um I uh, had a long career in the energy industries and I retired in 2018 as a scientific advisor to a major oil field services company so you can see that this is not at all the kind of thing that I expected to be doing with my retirement um I I got involved with this um really as a patient advocate because um one of the um, my experience of medicine is basically as a patient I am a 24 year survivor of stage four non Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, Mm -hmm. which was treated on a phase three clinical trial, or what was then a phase three clinical trial in stem cell transplantation. So I've had an interest in medicine from the uh, patient's point of view, at least since that time, because (laughs) I've been a major major consumer of (laughs) health care. so um, you know that's that, that's me. How did I get involved with this? Well, uh, initially, I think it was pure selfishness um, because when COVID hit the world, I was quite concerned just for myself because I'm well past the wrong side of sixty. I'm a survivor of a major immune system cancer. Um, I have an uncertain immune status anyway. Um, it sounds to me like this is something I have to watch out for. Um, So I started looking into repurposed medicines, and I've been doing that as a kind of hobby, um, uh, really, ever since. And um, it wasn't actually um, the FLCCC that first um, turned me on to ivermectin. It it was some media interventions by Professor Thomas Barodi in Sydney, Australia, um, last August, um, and I looked into uh, Tom Barodi, and of course he's a very famous gastroenterologist who mm-hmm. uh, basically eliminated um, um, bleeding peptic ulcers caused by Helicobacter pylori, because what he did he simply took um, medicines off the shelf um, and tried, played around and saw saw which ones worked, and he developed a very successful triple therapy for it. So this was obviously not a man who was a crank or in any way stupid. So I thought I ought to uh, listen to what he had to say about ivermectin. And then of course, Pierre Corrie came along uh, with his testimony to the US Senate and issued the FLCC print print, uh, which I picked up. I got in touch with Scott Mitchell. Um, and then when Tess Laurie um, uh, put out a video on YouTube on the 3rd of January, um, I reached out to her because I knew that that video was not going to last very long. Um, and she invited me to come in on to the Cochrane Review as a consumer representative, partly because of my interest and partly because of my medical history. So um, that's how I got involved with this whole thing. and. Um, What I thought I'd do tonight is just say a few words about the prophylaxis results, which are in the paper. I will show some of the uh, technical stuff if I can share my screen. Um, And share that. This is all wrong because, now how do I do a home with this? This is, maybe I have to go back. Oh yes, okay, here we are, here we go. Um, this was this was intended to be the, the, the uh, first slide and uh, you all warned me not to show uh, too much st- statistical stuff and there I've gone and done it. Um, but um, this is perhaps one of the easiest graphs in the paper to comprehend um, because it's, uh, it's dealing with the prophylaxis trials. So these people are not necessarily sick. It's a question of do you get sick um, if you're in contact with uh, with covid cases and you're taking ivermectin um, measured against, of course, a control group where you're not taking ivermectin. And I think it's the last um, uh, graph in the paper and it's what's called a forest plot. Um, If you've not seen these things before, there's a whole bunch of them in the paper. So it seemed reasonable to take you through uh, at least one of them. And there were three trials that were identified that were randomized trials and therefore qualifying for the review um, that dealt with prophylaxis. And the um, the names of the authors are at the left. And what you see in the graph is basically a risk ratio. Um, and further to the left means that ivermectin is good, further to the right means it's not so good or maybe it's not working at all. But, The the basic message here is that everything is in the left-hand side, which means that ivermectin reduces the chance of getting sick. And of course, this is a quantitative measure. And not to get too involved with things, just look at the bottom line. The bottom line is a risk ratio of 0.14. What does that mean? In round numbers, basically, it means that six out of every seven infections that would otherwise occur can be prevented. Huge, And so that seemed to me to be uh, very useful indeed. And it's a very, very clear result and it's a consistent result. So, um, but the main thing I wanted to say here is, and this is going beyond the paper, is that this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, To me, as a scientist coming from outside medicine, the idea that you disregard evidence that you've got from other areas is completely nuts. It's crazy. Um, So um, I took a look at these observational trials, which a lot of the academics like to sneer at. And uh, there's a whole bunch of them. And these are also to do with prophylaxis. And again, everything is on the left-hand side of the chart. So everything is working. And I'm going to feature just two of them. Uh, First of all, there's Professor Carvalho's trials in Argentina, where he actually got zero infections, none. Total perfect protection. Um, and that was in a situation where, in the second one of those trials at least, 58% of those not taking ivermectin got sick. And these are all high-exposure healthcare workers. They're working with COVID patients, so they're, they're, they're seeing a lot of um, potentiality for infection. How many of them got sick? None. Big round zero. And uh, that is, I mean, just astonishing. Um, the numbers were like 800 healthcare workers in the second of those, of those studies. Um, the next trial I want to feature, though, is I think the largest trial to date of ivermectin, possibly for, for, for anything, but this was for prevention. And it's basically the entire staff of the All India Institute of Medical Sciences um, outside Delhi. And you can see that over 2000 people were taking ivermectin prophylaxis and you know only 45 of them got sick. And what does the quantitative measure tell you? Well, it's 0.18. Remember the figure we had from the randomized controlled trials, it's 0.14. The, the, the numbers are basically the same as delivered by the uh, randomized studies. So a- again, everything here is consistent. And if you want to tell me, again, as a scientist coming from outside medicine, that all this arises by chance and it's just a fluke or people are deluded, um, I, I have to say, well, you know, you're out of your mind. Of course it's working. It's obvious. So um, that's that's those are the studies. Ivermectin works in prophylaxis, of that I've got no doubt. What I want to do here, and this is just some original observations of my own, I looked carefully at Dr. Schumann's study. This is one of the randomized controlled trials that was within the first group of three. And this is, to my knowledge, a unique study because it was of household contacts. And that means you know how many index cases you have. Those are the confirmed cases of COVID. An index case is a confirmed case of COVID but they're living in a household, and so they have the potential to transmit it to members of that household. And that enables you to make an e- um, estimate of the reproduction number. And if, I don't know about the how it is in the States, but I think in in, in England, Um, just about everybody in the country has heard of the R number because the government is absolutely obsessed with it. It's completely obsessed with it. And everybody knows that if it's bigger than one, then this is bad because the the, the epidemic is spreading. And if it's below one, hey, we can uh, heave a sigh of relief and hope to get back a little bit of normality. So this was very interesting to me because when you do... The, um, the calculation of the reproduction number, what you find, which I've tried to summarize on this little graph here, is that without the, the ivermectin prophylaxis, yeah, Dr. Schumann found basically a reproduction number which overlaps with the other literature where somebody's done a meta-analysis of all of the data on the reproduction number, which is out there, And then when you take ivermectin prophylaxis, there's really no doubt that the reproduction number is well below one. It really is well below one. How sure am I of that statement? Well, I put some confidence intervals on it. And thinking as a kind of physics geek, I thought this had to be a solved statistical problem. And it is, it was solved in the 1930s by a couple of guys called Klopper and Pearson. So the um, confidence intervals that I have there, which is basically the width of the green bar, um, are defined statistically. There's only a 5% chance that it's outside the green bar. So it's really very, very clear just from this this one study um, that um, ivermectin prophylaxis basically kills off the possibility of epidemic growth in the illness. And so my bottom line conclusion of this is ivermectin prophylaxis kills the onward transmission stone dead. And I'm astonished that nobody has uh, noticed this in, this in this paper. It is a unique feature because you know, the number of, um, of, of index cases. And um, that's my little original contribution for the evening. And I think I'll stop there at that point.
0: Well, that's interesting because what you're telling me uh-huh. and what you're telling everybody right now is it based on this and based on the analysis of these trials that what you're seeing is game over? This it basically says in normal times, this should tell everybody you take this and it's over. The pandemic is gone.
3: You see, uh, well, um, and one of the things that's happening in England, I don't know uh, whether, whether you've heard about it in, in, in the States, but the, um, the government made an, an awful lot of noise about the so-called test and trace um, uh, program and the test and trace program, in my opinion is a complete farce um, but uh, and it doesn't really work <laughs> um, but yeah. If, um, if, and it's, it's being done by highly coercive, um, highly coercive measures because um, you can get a 10,000 pound fine if you break the quarantine that uh, you're supposed to uh, go into if you've been in contact with an infected person. Now, uh, if um, instead they said, okay, you've been in contact with an infected person, stay where we are, we'll bring the ivermectin to your house um, and you could you can take that um that would basically i'm um, I, I think solve the problem why you know and it's so uh, safe it's cheap it's easy people would do it because it's in their interests and um personally i i can't see why we're not using this OK, we, we
0: I promised we'd get to some questions, and it's getting late in the hour. Let's bring the other doctors in uh, as well, uh, the doctors and PhDs as well as uh, MDs. At any rate, uh, this is really good material. I, we're going to have to ask you all to give short answers, but I've got to get these questions in. Number one, uh, from Dr. Austin, I'm getting calls from vaccinated people asking for ivermectin. Is there any reason to use ivermectin on a vaccinated person? Who can answer that? I,
2: I, I'll answer it. And uh, okay. I, I, I w- why would he be getting calls uh, for people to be using ivermectin when they're vaccinated? Supposedly, the vaccine, the vaccines, protects us from severe illness. Uh, sorry, my chair is going down. Um, so, I, I'd be interested in asking why. that that physician, um, why asking the people that are requesting it, why they're asking that. Um, I don't don't see any problem with giving ivermectin to vaccinated people. I can't see there's any interaction that I know of, any uh, 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 drug interactions between vaccines and ivermectin. So um, if you want to feel perhaps doubly protected, uh, you know, go for it.
0: Okay. All right. And we have to, uh, I'm told we have to do short, short questions, answers here because everything is, we're running so much out of time. Uh, Question number two is from Faith Wolf. I'm curious about the prophylactic use of ivermectin for those who have recovered from COVID-19. I had it in March before widespread testing and then tested positive for antibodies in November. Should I just continue to trust my natural immunity? Any of you want to tackle that? We might have the we might have the wrong group for that particular question <laughs> here. We can take a pass, and we can you know put this to Dr. Corey when Dr. Corey is unfortunately busy in the ICU. He hasn't been able to join us. He must have some some serious patients that he's he's working with. But at any rate, uh, that's we can take a pass if we don't have anybody that's able to do that. Um, we can try. I, yeah. I, I don't
2: want to answer all the questions, Scott, Betsy. But um, that's all uh, right. But you're the was, MD.
0: Yeah. But yeah. the question was, what, what, uh, what was... curious yeah. about the prophylactic use of ivermectin for those who have recovered from COVID-19. Uh, she had it in March before widespread testing and then tested positive for antibodies in November. Should she just continue to mm-hmm. trust her natural immunity or would mm-hmm. using ivermectin be wise? Uh... There's be, there has
2: been a few papers recently uh, uh, stating that perhaps the uh, uh, immunity um, conferred from having the infection is, is actually quite long lasting. Um, th- there's more aspects of immunity than just antibodies. There's T cell and other um, um, uh, mediated immunity. So uh, so I think in most people, that ha- having had the infection, you've probably got a good um uh, amount of uh, uh, protection if I really don't see why there would be a, again a problem taking if you wanted some added uh, um, you know uh, th- protection. Th- protection by taking ivermectin on top
0: okay all right and then here's the last one we probably have time for I'm sorry we didn't get to more here someone says I want the doctor who wrote me my prescription for ivermectin to give me a document that lets my employers know that I'm on ivermectin. I work for a place that wants to mandate the vaccine, and I want to prove that I'm protected. Have you done anything like this, Edmund? You're you're nodding. What 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 do you say to that?
3: So uh, I'm in nodding and I'm smiling because I've thought of the exact same thing. Um, uh, you know. So I've have been... I.
0: I'm on ivermectin.
3: <laughs> right, but I mean I. I don't take ivermectin all of the time because i don't consider that it, you know the the the, the illness is, is sufficiently widespread for it to be a hazard not in not in england right now i might do and i have done when i've been traveling internationally right. um because i consider that to be a, a sort of high risk situation um but i am smiling because of the the pressure that people are coming under to take the vaccine and i've been um, pressured by some slightly surprising routes, including our own national health service, um, saying that I was severely, you know, compromised because of my lymphoma history, and that not only should I be vaccinated, but also all members of my household, including um, my um, my own uh, son, who's just eighteen. Um, uh, and um you know I he doesn't need it because he's not at risk at all, really, from from any you know bad effects of actually getting COVID. So um I <laughs> I can't the, the the question of whether you can get a doctor to certify it is actually an interesting one. And I um <laughs> I think that this is one of the reasons that, um, that governments and politicians like vaccinations so much, because it's a, it's, um, it's a particular thing that can be done under scrutiny. It can be certificated and recorded um, and thereby form part of your sort of you know, personal biometric profile, as it were, and, and they like that kind of thing. Um, and it's much, it's much harder to do that um, if you're taking um, a pill as a prophylaxis, but, because what are you going to do? You've got to go to the doctor's office to have him watch you swallow a tablet, wash it down with water and say, OK, here's your certificate. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, it, it's a very, very good question, because if you could pr- provide the equivalent of that, then, of course, um, your, your question as problem would be answered
0: it's going to play out it's going to be, i've i've come across this i live in new york city and it's going to be very interesting because we have a lot of uh, things opening up and museums and theaters and everything else what are they they're talking about well we have to demand some kind of certification or something they're all trying to figure out what to do and people like me i want to say, i'm protected i'm protected with ivermectin i want to be able to enter places too because the evidence that you're showing shows that it's excellent protection that's what we want to get out there and that's what we want people to know and i have a doctor who will sign a piece of paper for me saying that he prescribed it and i'm on it so folks this is going to be an interesting one we'll have to follow this that's that's all the time we have for questions tonight sorry about that but you know next week uh, we'll be back. We maybe won't have so many people on, so that we, we will have, save a little bit more time for questions. But this was big. This is a big, important study, and uh, particularly that stuff on the prophylaxis is key, very key now, which is something that we're all looking at with precisely this as people are opening up. So, gentlemen, thank you all for staying up to a ridiculous hour. It's one o'clock in the morning for you, or what, you know, unbelievable time. And uh, thank you for being so gracious as to talk to our global audience, but so many of us over here on the other side of the pond. And for all of you who are at home, as I said, if we didn't get to your question, we'll be here next week, same time, seven o'clock Eastern time, four o'clock in the West, and everything else in between. Um, I'm to tell you that those uh, webinars that uh, they are up on our on our um, which which Joyce told me it's up on our YouTube um, station right we have it on our YouTube link anyway we will get everything up on the website as well but they have been up the the 16th um, last week's program is up and available on the weekly update channel. Um, it's all happening, but we'll, we'll see that you get it and we'll, we'll tweet it so that you'll know exactly where it is. Um, anyway, in the meantime, you know, if you wanna keep up to date with us, We are tweeting, we are using YouTube, we are on LinkedIn, we are on Facebook. Yes, they're taking some of our stuff down. That's why we are doing things on Telegram now as well. Um, FLCCC.net is the website we are doing a lot of recycling and upgrading and finishing and adding there's a lot to be done there so stay with us and keep watching there are going to be some changes more updates coming it's a lot of work and we're we're doing the best we can stay with us please the new iRecover trial of course that a lot of you long haulers it's on the website it's there right on the front page again um, we want to want you to know that we thank all of the physicians who have so carefully put all of this work together and the other scientists who've done the study tonight. This is key. The good science is important. It will be somewhere. We will have it up. You can watch it on Joe Rogan. Thank you, Joe, for doing a great show this morning with Brett Weinstein and with our Dr. Pierre Corey. That's it for right now. Thank you all for watching. Have a good week. Stay well. Take your ivermectin. And we will see you here next week.